Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. And welcome back. I'm Connor Stone, here with Professor Judith Irwin. Hello. Hi, Judith. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk about your really interesting work studying these uh, spectacular, like visually spectacular magnetic fields in these galaxies. But before we get on to that, I think I should give everyone a little bit of background about you. So for everyone listening, Judith Irwin grew up in Winnipeg and studied for her bachelor's at the University of Winnipeg, then went on to the University of Victoria for her master's and spent a few years afterwards working a lot in science uh, teaching and outreach, working as a physics lab instructor at Okanagan College and University of Victoria, and also um, did a lot of science outreach with a mobile planetarium where you went to uh, went all across the province to schools and gyms and showed people all sorts of really cool things about the night sky, which which I think is pretty amazing. And certainly I identify with having run the observatory for a while. It's it's a pretty great experience. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I understand then you went to the University of Toronto to complete your PhD. Afterwards, you were a research associate at the NRC over in Ottawa. So you're making your way all around Canada. <laughs> That's right. Uh, worked at JCMT um, or worked with JCMT while you were there and then found yourself here at Queen's University as a professor. And since then, you've had quite an illustrious career at Queen's supervising uh, roughly 17 graduate students <laughs> Uh, assuming that your website is up to date and you've since become the principal investigator for the changes collaboration, which is sort of the focus that we're going to be talking about today. And this collaboration has really brought together a lot of scientists around 45 members from 15 different institutions all around the world, Canada, the United States, China, Germany, Finland, I saw was in there, Australia, and even uh, Poland. So you've <laughs> you've really uh, brought people together from all around to work on these these really spectacular galaxies. I also noticed while I was uh, sort of researching a bit of your background that it seems like you're a bit of a Star Trek fan. So perhaps the first question I've got to ask you is uh, Kirk or Picard? Oh, uh, Picard for sure. <laughs> Picard for sure. <laughs> I can tell you, I, my husband and I watch endless repetitions of Star Trek. <laughs> I'm a really big uh, Next Generation fan as well, so I totally agree with you about choosing Picard. 
no, no question. Even Voyager. No question. <laughs> well, yes, there's there's certainly a lot more captains now, but I think the classic question is Kirk or Picard. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Mondays are is the repetitions of a classic Star Trek. So it's we, we sort of live now in our pandemic world according to which Star Trek is on which day. That's how I know what day it is, right? <laughs> Monday it's classic. <laughs> Monday is classic Star Trek. Tuesday is Next Gen, Wednesday is Voyager, <laughs> Thursday is Deep Space Nine, and Friday is Enterprise. So there you go. Now that tells you that I'm definitely a trekker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great that you've got some way to track time during the pandemic because I am totally lost. People tell me, uh, oh, by the way, it's Tuesday, and I, I think that it's Saturday, and I get totally mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes the only thing keeping me on track is my little calendar beeping at me, telling me I need to do something. Uh, <laughs> the pandemic has certainly changed how time works for me. Um, so it's great that you've got that that system in place. <laughs> All right. So on to, on to more science-related questions, perhaps. Um, I think the, the first and um, one of the more important questions is what what got you started interested in these spiral galaxies and their magnetic fields? How, how did you find yourself in this world? Oh, interesting question. Um, actually, I find that the more you learn about something, the more interesting it becomes. And the more interested you are in something, the more you learn about it. So in astronomy, there are many, many interesting subjects. But the key is to uh, have opportunity. Um, if I uh, go way back in time to my master's degree, um, I wanted to do some radio astronomy because there were few radio astronomers around compared to optical astronomers. In fact, that's still true. And I was interested in pursuing the road less traveled in a sense. And so radio seemed to be cool and interesting. And then if I jump forward to my PhD, at that time, um, there had been a recent discovery of what we call AGNs, in spiral galaxies. Now, the AGN stands for Active Galactic Nucleus. And in there was a paper, just an astrophysical journal letter paper, that showed that there were five galaxies discovered that had radio lobes. So if you can picture um, a bright nucleus uh, in the radio and then two blobs on either side of it showing that the nucleus was active and ejected material, and so that was rather new at the time of my PhD, and I studied one of these galaxies in quite some detail in neutral hydrogen. Um, but in the process of studying that galaxy, I saw quite a few features not related to the nucleus at all, but related to the plane of the galaxy, the disk. And when you looked away from the plane, you could see these interesting structures stretching way far uh, you know, from the disk itself. Um, and so that more or less morphed and grew into a study that has spanned my career. Um, we started to see other galaxies with similar features, structures in all kinds of wave bands and um, different types, dust, uh, dust, radio emission, thermal emission. We can go into those details later. Um, but it became obvious that uh, these, these galaxies showed... Um, bright, not bright, but uh, large uh, 
features above and below the plane that hadn't been seen before and really was an interesting opportunity. Awesome. So it was a it was a bit of trying to get away from the crowd and just noticing something at the right time, which is very yeah. cool. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, I was just lucky with that. There are so many interesting things in astronomy and you could practically close your eyes and throw a dart at a map of a of the sky. <laughs> and wherever the dart lands, you know, you could study it for the rest of your career. It's it's there's so much that still needs to be discovered and understood and the more you dig, the more you find the questions, you know, continue to emerge and uh, and to be part of that uh, process and in unveiling the truth slowly, <laughs> step by step, is is really quite uh, quite a privilege. I totally agree. That's that's part of the reason why I switched over from particle physics to astronomy because I realized there's just so many wonderful things to discover in astronomy. Indeed. So it's very cool. Um, so you've you sort of explained what what got you interested in these these galaxies. Maybe we should. Uh, for the listeners, describe a little bit about what these galaxies are. So maybe um, you can tell us about the spiral galaxies, um, edge-on versus face-on, that sort of information. Sure. If you um, boil galaxies down, they, they more or less fall into two groups. One group is called the elliptical galaxies, and these are more or less ellipsoidal in shapes, spherical, maybe a bit flattened. Um, they don't have a lot of star formation. They don't have a lot of uh, gas in them. And then there's another group, which is the spiral galaxies. And these are the ones that show these beautiful shapes. And I think most people have probably seen pictures. Uh, if you look face on on a spiral galaxy, you, you see these lovely spiral arms uh, Maybe you've seen pictures of the Andromeda galaxy or the Whirlpool galaxy or something like that. So I look at the second group, which is the spiral galaxies. Now, these are thin, relatively thin disks. So they're, they're rotating and their thickness is generally thought to be very uh, small compared to their diameters. So if you looked face on, we say face on, that would be a galaxy whose disk is in the plane of the sky. So to you, you see the entire disk, you see like a circle. But now if you tilt that galaxy edge on, it will look optically as if it's just a thin line in the sky. It doesn't look very thick because the uh, disk itself is pointing away from you or towards you in the line of sight. So, um, so when I look at edge-on galaxies, which has been the focus of my research, the reason is because if you want to see the stuff above and below the plane, then you need to look at these edge-on systems, or at least as close to edge-on as possible. And you might see some spiral structure a little bit, depending upon the tilt of the thing. So now you can say, all right, well, what's up there? What's up and down uh, above and below this plane? Anything. And it turns out that there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of gas, there's dust, there's hot ionized gas, there's X-ray emitting gas, etc., etc. And there's a much to study up there. And that's basically been how I've focused the research. All right. So um, those are our spiral galaxies and, and the edge-on class. And I know that um, whenever someone conjures an image of a spiral galaxy, they think of one of these face-on ones, like, like, you, like you mentioned, the 
whirlpool galaxy and the, the very pretty spiral arms, one might think that the edge-on galaxies that are, uh, as you said, just a line on the sky aren't, um, aren't maybe so, so pretty, but that's certainly not the case. And in fact, you've got some pretty remarkable images of these galaxies that we will certainly have to include a link in for in the podcast description. And uh, you've even won prizes with some of these images. I understand that uh, you won second prize in the 2020 NRAO image contest. Ah. So, <laughs> yes, um, I have to give credit to um, my collaborator, Jayanne English, who is at the University of uh, Manitoba right now. And she's really the expert at taking uh, the images uh, and making them look good. <laughs> so, so uh, and also Yelena Stein, one of our PhD students, um, uh, has also done some work to uh, enhance the images. So I basically spend my time trying to get the images right. Uh, and then um, Jayanne and maybe Yelena take a look and see if they can combine those images with other optical data, or et cetera. And has, as you can see, she's done a very good job. For sure, yes. Those are those are really quite spectacular images. And yeah, certainly when I say you as related to changes, we're really talking about this large collaboration. And so yeah. it's it's great that you're mentioning sort of who who is involved at e at each stage. Um, so before we go to our first break, I think there's still a little bit more um, background information that we might want to give to the listener. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the, the interstellar medium and uh, the cosmic rays. Okay. So the interstellar medium, also called the ISM, is gas that permeates the disk um, of a spiral galaxy. And there are actually many components to the ISM. Um, there are, there's dust, and we heard um, Sarah Sadovoy talk about dust in a previous uh, podcast. Um, there is um, ionized gas that would be um, gas that's hot enough for a single for a hydrogen atom to lose an electron. There's very hot gas that would be giving uh, same thing, but uh, hot enough to be emitting in, in X-rays. Um, and what mainly I've been focusing on is um, the radio continuum emission. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that. There's actually two components to radio continuum, but the strongest one is the one that I'll focus on, and that is called synchrotron emission. And it comes from two things. You need, you got, you have to have two uh, uh, ingredients to get synchrotron emission. And ingredient one is cosmic rays, and ingredient two is magnetic fields. Now, cosmic rays are are mostly protons, protons and electrons, and sometimes alpha particles that are moving at the speed of light or very close to it. And so you have these high energy particles and you have magnetic fields. And unless you have both of them, you don't see this emission. So when we see radio emission that is synchrotron, we know that those two components are there. Those two elements are there. That's great. So you, you do a little bit of detective work when you know when you see the the synchrotron emission, you you're able to tell that there must have been certain ingredients that led yes, to that. And, right. and that's, that's part of how you study the magnetic fields, which we will 
we will get into in the next segment. I think that covers all of the sort of background information and terms that we're going to need in order to dive deep into the science in the next section. So we'll go to our first break for now. And when we come back, we will be talking about the changes. Okay. Hello, Nick here. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. There will also be links to all of these online channels in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Time to learn more about our amazing universe. And welcome back. So now that we've learned uh, a little bit about the basics of spiral galaxies and uh, how the interstellar medium, halo, edge on versus face on works, we get to talk about the really interesting uh, changes, collaboration, and their work. So I think to begin with, um, Judith, can you tell us what changes is? What does it mean? And Okay. What, are, what is your goal? It, it's a bit of a mouthful. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> it stands for Continuum Halos in Nearby Galaxies and EVLA Survey. Okay, so uh, the VLA is the Very Large Array in New Mexico in the United States, and that has been the telescope that we've used for this project. Uh, EVLA means Expanded Very Large Array, uh, and the reason for that is because about a decade ago, the VLA underwent a very major expansion. And by expansion, I don't mean adding new telescopes to the array. It was, it's actually an array of 27 antennas on a railway track, um, and they work together. Uh, but the expansion had to do with expanding the bandwidth. So when we say bandwidth, we say, okay, I can look uh, in the radio at a certain frequency. Let's say I'm looking at 1.4 gigahertz frequency. We call that L-band. And we can look at uh, another frequency, and it's maybe 6 gigahertz, and that's called C-band. Um, but what they did was they expanded the width of those bands significantly. And it doesn't sound, uh, you know, interesting in the sense of new, new antennas, but what it did was it, it improved the sensitivity of the telescope enormously. Because if you let light, and I'm using the word light for any electromagnetic radiation, including radio, if you let the light come through a narrow bandwidth, you're only going to collect so much signal. But if you widen the bandwidth, then you collect a lot more signal. And that means that you can go more sensitive than you could before. And sensitivity is important for what we're doing because the, the emission that's coming from the halos, which we mentioned now, uh, the stuff above and below the plane, that, uh, that emission is perhaps 10% weaker than the emission that you'd get from the disk itself. And if we were to go further, we'll probably get into this later and look at polarization, that's again another 10% weaker than the, the emission given that isn't polarized. And so we really needed sensitivity to see these halos. And uh, so that really started, um, it really was the impetus for this new uh, new changes program. And basically at that time, uh, I thought, 
in order to do a really good job of this, we need to get together not just radio astronomers, but we need to get together X-ray astronomers, infrared astronomers, um, people who deal with the optical, uh, theoreticians. Uh, we needed to pull together a group of people who really understood, who had been working on halos and were interested in them, uh, and together to look at uh, the halos and focusing, of course, on the radio, um, but pulling together all of that knowledge. Basically, I emailed everybody I knew <laughs> <laughs> and said, do you, are you interested in this project? And do you know somebody else who is interested in this project? And uh, off we went. That's fun. So you, you realized the need for sort of a collaboration of a whole bunch of different wavelengths. And of course, each one takes its own expertise. And so you, you were able to just email up your friends and <laughs> put together a collaboration. That's well, very cool. Some were friends and some I hadn't met yet, but uh, you know, we in the field, you start to know who's publishing and uh, that was a, a good starting point. And then of course, students were interested and some postdocs and uh, uh, people said, yeah, we should, we should do this. And that's how it started. Very cool. Um, and I, something I've just got to mention is in proper astronomer style, your acronym for changes has another acronym in it. <laughs> Which, I, uh, <laughs> I, I have to. Take, I'm sorry. I have to take responsibility for that. I can't blame anybody else in the consortium for for that. What is now not a great acronym, but there it is. It's done. <laughs> Nobody came up with another at the time. Yeah, and I mean that's that's basically all acronyms in astronomy. So we can't blame you for that. You're you're not alone. You're in good company. Um, so. <laughs> Now that you uh, have this collaboration together for studying these these halos in galaxies, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how it is uh, in more specifics that you measure these magnetic fields. You mentioned polarization, and you were you were right that we're going to get there. So <laughs> we sh we should we should probably uh, dive into that and sort of talk about how you make these measurements. Okay. Um, the I should mention also that uh, when we say halos, we are not talking about dark matter halos, which also exists. Oh, yes, good point. Yeah, we don't know really what the dark matter is uh, at this point in history. Um, so when I say halos, I mean um, a sort of a very large region around the, this edge-on spiral galaxy disk and stretching as far out as... I mean, it's stretching a long ways. So in fact, if you were to draw a line from the center of the galaxy up to the end of the halo, so much as we know now, that would be about the same as the diameter of the galaxy. So the spiral galaxy, which is a thin disk, we thought, has these rather significant and strong halos around them. Um, yeah, and for sure, you've you've put together an in incredible picture by stacking many galaxies together. Yes. So we will include a link to that, okay. to that photo in in the podcast description. Right. So now, getting back to your question though about um, how do we do it? Well, um, as I say, these images are in the radio. We've picked two different frequencies. Uh, in fact, C band and L band, as I already mentioned earlier, and you set up your observations at the very large array. Um, now, the very large array, as I said, is 27 antennas on a Y-shaped railway track. And the, it's, it's a bit tricky, but if you can imagine 
those antennas, they can move along, they can be stretched out to a configuration which is very wide, or they can be shrunk down to a configuration that's very close together, all the antennas close together. And if you uh, do um, try to make a map from the, ga- the VLA when the antennas are close together, what you do is you are picking out the broad scales, the broad scale structure on the sky. And if you stretch out the antennas along the railway track to their broadest configuration, you actually at that point are looking at the fine structure on the sky. And so what you do is you put together all this information to get structure on the sky, um, which is over different spatial scales. And by spatial scales, I just mean, um, you know, the moon is 30 arc minutes across in the sky. That's a pretty big spatial scale, whereas a star is a fraction of an arc second in the sky in reality. And uh, that's a small spatial scale. And so if you do this for a galaxy, you put it all together, that allows you to reconstruct the image that is on the sky. Um, So it's a lot of work. (laughs) Uh, You have to gather all this information together. You have to do what we call Fourier transforms to get the image on the sky. Then you have to make a lot of corrections. So you you can actually work for a very long time trying to make an image. And then we've did, done this in different configurations of the uh, very large array, large and small configurations, and worked even harder <laughs> to put together the images. So that would give you what we would call a total intensity radio emission. Uh, you can call that capital I, total intensity. But then the question is, what do I mean by polarized emission? Um, so now for polarized emission, um, you have to imagine imagine yourself standing and looking at a wave, wave excuse me a light light which is coming towards you okay and it's a wave and so this wave that's coming to directly towards you into your eye it has an oscillation and it could oscillate because it's a wave it's oscillating up and down up and down up and down up and down coming into your eye but it's also there's another uh, another wave that's doing the same thing from the same source, but it's it's oscillating right and left and right and left and right and left as it comes into your eye. And there's a bunch of so other it's almost so it's almost like uh, if a, a wave from the ocean is coming towards you, it's going up and down. But if a snake is moving towards you, it's waving side to side. Right? Perfect analogy. Very well done. And then also there's waves, you know, 45 degree angles and that kind of thing. So there's the oscillation of the light which is coming towards you is in all those angles, at all those directions. Now, what is polarized light? Well, polarized light, for the simplest way to look at it, is suppose you are looking at a picket, picket fence and the light is coming towards the picket fence. Only the oscillations that are going up and down will slip through that the picket fence. The oscillations that are going side to side get blocked by the picket fence. And so... When you observe polarized light, really all you're doing is picking out, picking out the, uh, a certain angle at which the light is coming towards you. Um, and so that's why I mentioned before that polarized intensity is even weaker than the weak halos that we see in total intensity because we're picking out those, those particular angles. Okay, what for, right? <laughs> if you pick out the polarized light, there is, uh, gets kind of mathematical. There's something called Stokes parameters, but that's a mathematical cons- construct. Basically, the, um, the polarized emission is telling you the angle, um, it will tell you the angle of the magnetic field. Actually, it, it, the, the initial information you get is the angle of the electric field of the uh, emission coming towards you. <clears throat> but 90 degrees from that 
is the angle of the magnetic field. And the magnetic field, uh, I want to know that angle. So the uh, angle of the uh, magnetic field in the sky uh, tells you about the geometry of the magnetic field in the galaxy itself. So long story short, we look at the total intensity, which tells you that there must be synchrotron emission plus magnetic fields. And then we look at the polarized intensity that tells you the angle that the magnetic field uh, has uh, in the plane of the sky. Um, so I hope that's uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so that, that tells us how we sort of measure these magnetic fields and, of course, why it's such a challenging task and why uh, you needed so much expertise to come together to sort of tease out this information, put together, as you said, multiple different scales for your images. And once once everything comes together and you've you've sort of pulled out that very, very faint information from the polarized light and the magnetic fields, you were able to see the structure of these magnetic fields in the galaxies. And there there's been there's been some really distinct structures that that you found most notably I, I at least i saw is an x shape in these in these magnetic fields and maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, why that happens and what that tells us about the galaxy yes absolutely um the structure that i mentioned that the polarized emission that gives us the structure in the plane of the sky um there is a component of the magnetic field in the plane of the sky and then there is a component of the magnetic field which is along your line of sight. So students of physics will recognize this as a vector. Um, now, the, when you look at the field in the plane of the sky, this polarized emission, you see what tends to be very large X-type structure. Okay, how can I describe that? Think of, look at the center of the galaxy, think, and then from the center, basically draw a line up and to the right, and then draw another line up and to the left, and draw another line down and to the right, and another line down and to the left. And what we see is that this is a common feature of spiral galaxies. Now, um, it had been true that before changes, there had been some galaxies found that had this feature. But what wasn't realized is that it now appears to be a common feature amongst spiral galaxies. It's actually common. Um, originally, people thought, well, what's making this X? Maybe there's an outflow. Maybe there's a wind from the center of the galaxy just blowing out those magnetic fields and making this big X shape. And that could still be the case in uh, for a number of galaxies. But what I did was I, I stacked, I took the polarization structure of almost all of our galaxies and rotated the galaxies and changed, you know, stretched and shrunk the size of them to make sure that they were all aligned and then weighted everything properly according to our signal to noise and added them all up to see what the global structure is for all galaxies. <clears throat> and what we found, which I thought was amazing, was that this X-shaped field was still, was still present. And, you know, of course, you have to do a bunch of checks and make sure that it isn't just one galaxy that's dominating all the others. But it does appear that galaxies, spiral galaxies in general, have a certain mode that gives you this X-shaped field. Um, that, I think, was a real step forward from changes. Now, I know the next question is going to be, what makes the X-shaped field? <laughs> um, uh, you're, you're anticipating my <laughs> questions, yeah. <laughs> so. 
the the uh, the wind idea could still be there, but it's unlikely that all of these galaxies have winds. Um, there could be a common thread of winds. It's true, but. We have a model, uh, and this is thanks to um, mainly Richard Henriksen, a theoretician in our group, who has developed models uh, which talk about the magnetic dynamo. Uh, now, we can explain these X fields with magnetic dynamo action. Okay, So what is a dynamo? <laughs> um, a dynamo is a way of taking a weak field, weak magnetic field, and making it stronger, amplifying that field and making it stronger. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, suppose you have a magnet, like a hard magnet you can touch, and you bend it, and then one side is a south pole and one side is a north pole. And between those, so you have a magnetic field between those two poles. Now you slip a conducting uh, disk between them, and you rotate that disk. Then what can happen if you put the if you set it up right, get the geometry right, is that the rotation of the conducting disk adds to the existing magnetic field that was already there and makes it stronger. That's basically a dynamo, a magnetic dynamo. And we see so, this sorry. So you so you don't get the stronger magnetic field for free. You kind of have to put in this work of rotating the disk. That's right. But it, you can turn this rotation energy, which certainly spirals have, uh, into a more powerful magnetic field. Absolutely. There has to be what we call a seed field to begin with, but it doesn't, doesn't have to be that strong. Um, we see this happening in the Earth. We see it in Jupiter. We see it in our sun. Um, you have rotation, and you also tend to have some motion up or down, like convection. But in the galaxy, of course, there's stuff everywhere. And uh, we think that the, the, there's turbulence at the level of the uh, disk itself. There's turbulence and there, in, your, in the beginning, was a weak field. In addition, you have this rotation. So you combine the rotation with this turbulence, and that can create a much stronger magnetic field. And that's then what we see today. Now, um, the spiral structure that we see optically isn't always exactly the same as the magnetic spirals. They can be offset. And so these magnetic spirals can actually lift from the disk up into the halo. And so now you can imagine a kind of big spiral in a rotating disk that's lifting up into the halo. And in projection, you're going to see an X-type field. Um, that's a bit hard to it's a bit hard to explain without pictures, but uh, basically there that's one way that's what we call one mode. So it's a simple mode that can give the X type structure. There are other modes though that you can get uh, depending on on how the rotation is and other things going on, whether there is outflow, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah. So, uh, so we believe that the dynamo, and this is actually still something that is that is. Uh, um, under discussion, and, and there's still, but there are a number of papers now published about this. Um, we think that the dynamo is actually the strongest um, effect producing the X-type fields in these galaxies. Okay, so you you've been able to um, come up with a model which can explain these X-magnetic fields. You've mentioned that it it could be outflows for maybe specific galaxies, but the dynamo is something that would make sense all of them. And you've also got these different modes that you can use to 
sort of predict what the 3D structure of the magnetic field would look like and see uh, what you should expect the observations to be when, of course, you can't just turn the galaxy to whatever angle you want to see it. You have to, um, you have to look at a specific galaxy at a specific orientation, like the edge-on ones that you've been focusing on. And I wonder, um, do you then predict that maybe we'll be able to detect these other modes and, um, and see these other shapes? Uh, okay, so um, another really exciting result from the Changes uh, Consortium uh, was the analysis of the magnetic fields, the, the component of the magnetic fields that is going away from you or towards you. Remember before I said there's a component in the plane of the sky that shows this X shaped, but in addition, there's another component going away or towards you. And first year students will recognize this as the magnetic field being a vector. But now let's just focus on the components going away or towards you. And you can tell whether they are by the sign, S-I-G-N, of the polarization. And if the polarization is plus, the field is coming towards you. And if it's minus, the field is going away from you. And a brand new discovery was related to a galaxy called NGC 4631, uh, led by Carolina Mora, a German PhD student. And what you see is, uh, if you look, you can imagine this line, which is the edge on galaxy in the middle of the disk, now go up from the disk maybe two kiloparsecs, how far would that be? Maybe 20% of the diameter of the disk itself. And now draw a line parallel to the disk. And as you go along that line parallel and above the disk, you see a regular pattern of plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus, and something similar below the plane, which is a little more difficult to, to, uh, to tell uh, from the image. But the point is that parallel to the major axis, parallel to the disk, but above it in the halo, there's this regular pattern of fields that change from pointing towards you to away from you, towards you and away from you. And that was very, very exciting because that has not been seen in any galaxy ever. It's the first time this kind of regular pattern has been seen. And we actually have a model now, um, this Dynamo model that I mentioned earlier. If you look at the various modes that are possible, uh, you can actually reproduce this uh, structure by the Dynamo. So again, it's another uh, strengthening of our models um, of Dynamo action in the galaxy. Certainly. Uh, that's really cool that your, your Dynamo model is able to uh, explain this completely new observation that you've made, and that's always it's always very exciting in science when your your sort of understanding from one part sort of predicts what's going to happen next and fits in perfectly with new observations. Yes, indeed. I think uh, I think that's a really exciting place to sort of leave off for our second break, and when we come back, we'll sort of take a step back and talk a little bit more about the bigger picture. Hi, it's Nick. While we're really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. The McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap programs are all very enthusiastic about bringing the universe down to Earth. 
Mary Beth at CFHD is also involved in many outreach programs for all ages that you should check out. Links to all these online programs will be available in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion. And welcome back, everyone. So now we've heard about these really spectacular magnetic fields in these edge-on galaxies, the very distinct X shapes, and some of the new discoveries, the sort of plus-minus, plus-minus that you observed with uh, using or with the changes collaboration. So um, now we're going to sort of take a, a bit of a bigger picture step, and I'd like to ask you, what are what do you think are some of the next steps for changes? Um, we've started one step already. Um, uh, this is a, a project being led now by one of our consortium members, Volker Hiesen from Germany, and it's to look at what we call S-band. Now, if you remember from the beginning, uh, we're looking at two different bands at the Very Large Array, uh, and the bandwidth is quite large, but there's a gap between those two. There's a, what we call C-band and L-band. There's a gap between them, and that gap is S-band. And what we'd like to do, is, or we, we've already got time to do, um, and we're getting more data this, this summer, is to fill in that gap. And that will accomplish two things. First of all, with wide bandwidths, you get very high signal to noise. And so you're able to look at fainter and fainter objects, and of course, fainter halo regions. Uh, and the second is that this synchrotron emission that I was talking about earlier um, has um, a structure in frequency. In other words, um, synchrotron emission tends to be stronger at L-band, less strong at S-band, and less and even less strong at C-band. And so it, it makes a kind of slope across those three bands. Um, and so what we're going to do is fill in that gap, get the high signal to noise, and in addition we can extract the information about the, the way in which the emission declines. It's called a spectral index. And so we, we see how that emission declines with frequency, and we'll be able to model that much, much better. And that tells us something about the cosmic ray uh, sources. For example, um, you know, is this a young uh, source? Has it been, has it been uh, have the cosmic rays been accelerated recently or not, for example? And that's a lot more information that we can extract about these halos. That's so, very exciting. It, it almost makes me think of um, with human color vision, if everyone could see in red and blue, you're now adding in green. Sort yes, of. exactly. So, that's exactly the same. Yeah. The one in the middle, but it, it really adds a lot, being able to see green. <laughs> yes, indeed. So that'll help. And then in addition, um, you may have heard already, of course, that there's this square kilometer array called the SKA, S-K-A, and there are pathfinders that the full square kilometer array hasn't been completed yet, but there are some components of it which have pathfinders, and there's one that's already taking proposals uh, called Meerkat, M-E-E-R-K-A-T, in South Africa. And so our group will move into that regime to try and make use of uh, of that telescope and to look in detail as well at some galaxies and changes and some galaxies that are in the southern hemisphere more easily seen by Meerkat. Now, scientifically, what's all that doing for you? Um, basically, if you um, 
think of this halo again, it's these are rather huge regions around galaxy disks, and our Milky Way also will, has a halo, a gaseous halo. But the question then is, well, how far do, do they go? Um, and what about the polarization? Do the magnetic fields actually go far enough to connect to magnetic fields in the intergalactic medium between galaxies? Or do the magnetic fields close at some point, you know, according to the laws of physics, they should perhaps close in a very large loop and maybe come back to the galaxy. Um, to, so to see that enormous, already they're big, but to see this enormous structure um, on, on larger scales, that would be really exciting. And that would be um, a step, a next step, actually. Oh, that's very interesting. And certainly you'd need the the newer, more powerful telescopes in order to detect these even uh, fainter signals. You're 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 already preempting one of my questions, which was, uh, what what telescopes are you excited for? So it's good to know that uh, Meerkat is one of these telescopes that you're excited for. Are you going to have to change the changes acronym if, <laughs> if you change telescope? <laughs> um, to be honest, the S band, uh, which is still is still at the very large array, so we've been tossing about ideas for um, calling it just changes to or something like that. You know, we're not exactly anybody who names the Big Bang, the Big Bang doesn't have a lot of imagination when it comes to naming things. And we're no different. <laughs> so um, so uh, that part may just be changes, you know, S or changes part two or something like that. Going to Meerkat, where we actually change the galaxy, we include galaxies that might be different. Um, then we probably need to think about a different acronym, maybe changes south or something like that. That is yet to become to be done, right? We don't know yet. Fair enough. And actually, you've you've sort of led perfectly into one of my other questions, which is on um, now that you've sort of built up this understanding about uh, the magnetic fields in these more specific edge-on spiral galaxies, are you getting a sense of what magnetic fields you you might think could be out there in other types of galaxies, in the elliptical galaxies, or in maybe uh, other other types of spiral galaxies, maybe ones with a powerful AGN, or are those those still new frontiers that haven't been explored yet? <laughs> um, well, that's a good question. I I think you see it's the magnetic fields may be there, but we might not be able to see them because remember you need two ingredients. You need the magnetic fields plus Plus, you need um, cosmic rays. And the cosmic rays come from star formation. And so if you look, for example, at a little dwarf galaxy where there isn't much star formation going on, there could be all kinds of magnetic fields, but you don't necessarily have them illuminated by the cosmic rays. Uh, elliptical galaxies are similar because you see these AGNs at the middle, these nuclear sources, and you can see enormous uh, synchrotron emitting um, radio lobes on either side of them. So that's been done and that's been known for some time. Um, but there are other ways, you might have to look in other ways to see about the galaxies that don't have a lot of star formation. Um, there are some ways of doing that. Um, background galaxies, for example, we saw a really neat galaxy. Um, it's called UGC 10288, another very exciting name. Um, but <laughs> behind it, there was a double-lobed extragalactic source. And the light from the background source is coming through the foreground galaxy. 
And what happens is that the direction of uh, the polarization of the background source rotates as the light comes through the foreground galaxy. So that gives you information about the magnetic field of the foreground galaxy, even if you couldn't see the magnetic field directly from synchrotron emission in the foreground galaxy. So, uh, so there are other ways of probing, um, but right now we haven't quite uh, figured out how to approach that next step. I see. So there's, there's sort of lucky configurations where if uh, two things line up on the sky just by chance, you have an opportunity to tease out more information, but that's sort of something you're still working on. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and of course, the sky, uh, the, the fainter you can look, the more sources you see in the sky and the more likely it is that you'll see a source that's aligned with the foreground galaxy. I see. Okay. And will you have to expand the sample of galaxies that you're studying in order to uh, increase your chances of coming across these? Or are there ways for you to... Yeah, I think we probably will want to expand the number of galaxies that we see. Um, uh, Changes now, we're still doing work on this um, project, and there's still much more that can be done. But there's a point at which you say, okay, now we're, we have to shift gears a bit and maybe look at a different set of galaxies and uh, focus more, uh, change our focus a little bit from one thing to another. Okay. Um, and there was something that I came across that I know while I was uh, looking up your uh changes research that I, I don't know too much about, but you mentioned in one of your papers, these uh, giant magnetic ropes. I wonder how those are, I wonder how those are connected. And it sounds like a very sort of, uh, it's a very interesting name, giant magnetic ropes, and it caught my attention. <laughs> yes, no, that was, that was a press release. <laughs> um, well, uh, the X-type fields that I talked about show you the dominant um shape of the magnetic field as it goes above and below the plane. But there are other structures as well. Um, it's just not, it's just that they're not dominant necessarily in, for all galaxies. But if you look at individual galaxies, uh, you can actually see um, other structures rather than the X-shaped fields. And we've simply dubbed those giant magnetic ropes. We <laughs> 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 so, so, didn't know what else to say. We tossed around these ideas and said, well, what are we going to call these things? You know, they, they are unique. And that's what we came up well, with. That's a great name because it, it really sticks in my mind, at least. <laughs> okay, so um, well, I I think it's been great learning about these um, these magnetic fields and these galaxies with you, and I I sort of wanted to ask you now that you've sort of had this changes collaboration come together and be so successful. What advice would you have given your past self before jumping into all of this? <laughs> That's a great question. I would say, um, younger Judith, <laughs> be bolder earlier. Because, uh, you know, as a young scientist, you are, you know, maybe you're a PhD student and you're thinking, well, gee, you know, am I any good? Do I know anything? You know, or maybe you're a postdoc and you're saying to yourself, am I even going to have a job? next year or the year after. Um, And so I think those kinds of concerns hold you back a bit. And I would say, just ignore them. You know, do what you think needs to be done. Be bold. And, you know, fortune fortune favors the bold, as they say. (laughs) Very true. The other 
the other thing I would say is relish the small moments. Uh, the, the moments that have been happiest for me haven't necessarily been the ones, in science that is, haven't necessarily been the ones that would go down in the history books, you know. But I remember when I looked at NGC 5775 for the first time in neutral hydrogen, and it had a companion galaxy near it. And it had two, what I found was suddenly in, after all this work, you see two really distinct bridges connecting those two galaxies. And that was kind of memorable for me because I remember looking at this and I know that other people have seen bridges before. Other people have seen interacting galaxies before, but no one had ever seen it before in this galaxy and its companion. And you just have to pause and you have to say, you know, I'm the first person in all of humankind in all of history to see this and that's what science is that's what discovery is um in fact who knows i could be the first person in the universe to see it <laughs> but uh but those moments when you see something new even if it's minor if you know relish them and enjoy them and just take a few moments to look and say that to yourself before you show anybody else <laughs> <laughs> That's that's really some great advice. Um, certainly, while doing my research, you you really get into the numbers, and you have you have tables and tables of numbers that represent all these galaxies. And every now and then, one of them is causing you problems. You pull it up, and it's just this it's just this beautiful looking galaxy. And you got to stop for a moment Absolutely. and appreciate it. Yeah. So that's that's certainly some great advice for past Judith, and maybe <laughs> for our listeners as well. Um, and as long as as long as we're talking about advice, I mean, you've you've had a very successful collection of graduate students that you've supervised, and also a lot of um, science outreach. You've certainly been very involved with the observatory. Back when we were allowed to meet in person, you were a regular at the observatory open houses, explaining all of the wonders of space to everyone. Maybe you could. Um, Tell us a little bit about your philosophy for communicating science. Well, you know, <laughs> it's a tough problem. It's a yeah, tough question. The big questions are the hardest to answer. But you know, <laughs> no kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> kiss the kiss motto. <laughs> you know, um, don't jump. I mean, one thing I find with graduate students is that they're obviously trying very hard, and they're showing um, all the knowledge that they have. But the basic questions are usually pretty simple. And that's what people relate to. And so um, if you can keep it simple and uh, have a few people take away a f just a few things from what you've said, one or two maybe, maybe three, I don't know, then you've been successful. And I've heard many, many talks. And I've heard many talks where people walk away and say, boy, that guy was great. Wasn't he great? Or boy, she was wonderful. But I don't want that. I want somebody to walk away from my talk and say, Ah, oh, that's what that meant. Now we understand that, and that's I think what we should go for. That's that's a great point. I mean, sometimes you come a, you come away from a talk and you you know that there was a whole bunch of information there, and you're really impressed by it. But the really good ones give you one or two real nuggets that are going to stay with you forever, right? Absolutely. Well, that's that's some great advice as well. And uh, thank you, Judith, so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been great having you here. Um, uh, Connor, I should say thank you very much. Uh, you and Nikhil and the work that you've gone to here, this is amazing. 
what a great initiative that you've started. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, it, it's been a lot of fun learning about everyone's research here at Queens, and uh, I've I've learned a lot. It's it's been a it's been a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, th- thank you again for joining us. Okay. And uh, I and I think we'll call it there. Bye, everyone. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.